podcast about creativity, community, and pursuing a career in writing. I'm your host, Evelyn Barry. Today, we're going to talk not just about community, but the legacy that a community leaves. We're going to be talking to the president of the Poetry Society of South Carolina. This state poetry society, founded in 1920, is the oldest state poetry society in the country, responsible for hosting monthly readings and workshops by world-class poets. I've been a member of the Poetry Society since 2013 and have served a few years on its board. It is a fantastic program, and I'm hoping to take a little bit of time today to also convince you that it is worth your while if you are a South Carolina poet, and even if you're a writer outside of South Carolina, to join the Poetry Society of South Carolina. It's fairly affordable. An annual membership is only $30, and you get access to some of the best workshops that I've ever been to. These are not your typical workshops. You're not doing stuff that's super simple. You know, no one is just having you sit down and telling you, okay, we're going to write it about our feelings or we're going to just do just the haiku. No, no, no. We, we go deep. We go deep into craft and explore some really interesting topics. So if you're a poet who um, wants to get to know the contemporary poetry world and also want to challenge yourself to write um, poetry that's more engaged, or if you're just someone who wants to find a community of fellow poetry lovers, then the Poetry Society of South Carolina is for you. Late last year, during the 100th year of the Society's existence, President James J. Lundy published A History of the Society's Expansive History. This book, The History of the Poetry Society of South Carolina, 1920-2021, to is a meticulously researched work that details every reader, event, and drama from the organization's century-long tenor in Charleston, South Carolina. The history addresses the society's origins, its vibrant characters, its controversies and ruptures, its victories and challenges, and its compelling story of survival. How did this organization last so long? I mean, a hundred years. And what has changed since the society's inception? Let me tell you a little bit about the person I'm interviewing in this episode. James J. Lundy, also known as Jim Lundy, is the current president of the Poetry Society of South Carolina and served previously in that capacity from 2008 through 2011. He was the curator and MC of Monday Night Poetry and Music, which was the longest-running open-mic reading series in Charleston until it concluded in November 2017. He has two chapbooks of poetry, All I Can Be Is Myself, and Funny in the Way of Trenchant Men, and a CD of original songs, Don't Believe Every Story You're Told. Born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, Lundy has been a resident of Charleston, South Carolina since 1988. Without further ado, let's hear from our guest. Hi, uh, 
uh, we have James Lundy Jr. Thank you for being with us today. I am really thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. So you are the author of the recently released The History of Poetry Society of South Carolina, which tells 100 years of history from the Poetry Society's inception to what's going on today in 2021. Could you tell us a little bit about where you're from and who you are? All right. Well, I was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, and um, I moved to Charleston when I got out of college. So right out of college, I got a job and that brought me to Charleston. So I consider Charleston the place, it's really the only place I've lived where I was always an adult and on my own. So it's really my hometown. Um, I I borrowed a line from uh, Sarantha, whom you know. Uh, She said, she's not from New Jersey. I asked her if she's from New Jersey. She said, oh, I'm not from New Jersey anymore. And uh, I feel that same way about Detroit. I, uh, I, Charleston's my hometown. Yeah, Charleston's become the home. Um, around what time, you know, before you moved here or after, did you become interested in writing and reading and listening to poetry? Well, that's I. I'm. I can't even really pinpoint it. I. I was into. Um, so I. I was an engineer. Uh, well, I. I went to school to be a mechanical engineer. I was an engineer for 15 years before I finally just uh, couldn't stand it anymore. Um, so I never had uh, any kind of writing or literature class after high school. Uh, so um, I've always been interested, always been a reader, a uh, voracious reader. Um, I felt quite unusual amongst my engineering colleagues as far as uh, interests in in, in the arts and, and reading, uh, which they certainly didn't seem to have. Um, I kind of just accidentally stumbled upon the Poetry Society. I wasn't particularly looking for it, but I just found out I enjoyed it. And, and one thing led to another. And before long, I was on the board and I've been on the board ever since. However many years that was like 15 years now, something like that. I think so. I, I From your book, um, it seemed that um, you were basically gang pressed into service for the Poetry Society uh, because you knew how to use Excel uh, via Microsoft. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what those early years were like as you got involved? Well, yeah, you're right. I, I, um, they were looking, they, they were, I was about 40 at the time and they, uh, they were looking for someone young and 40 at that time was very young for the Poetry Society. Um, and Oliver Bowman, who was on the board, uh, grabbed me. Uh, I was not, and I'm an introvert. I, I'm, I'm not comfortable uh, talking to strangers and uh, any situation like that. I was just going for the poetry and, and trying to get out as fast as I possibly could afterwards. And uh, Oliver Bowman kind of blocked the door one day and, and uh, asked me if I'd be interested in um, doing membership because they were about to lose their membership chairman and they needed a young person because it involved working on computers. And, uh, and I said, well, I don't, I'm 40 years old, but uh, I, yeah, I know how to use Excel because I was an engineer. I used it all the time. And, um, and that, that's how I got on the board. And um, pretty much, I guess a few years later, I was made president. Uh, I was served as president for three years and um, then went uh, back to membership for a long time. And now I'm in my third year of my second stint as president. 
you're president of the Poetry Society once again, and you've just come out with this book, The History of the Poetry Society of South Carolina. Um, I remember when I first met you, you were the host of a weekly poetry and music open mic series called Monday Night Blues or Monday Night Poetry and Music. Could you tell us a little bit about your background hosting um, that event? I was introduced to that through a uh... Well, I guess ex-girlfriend at the time, she she had gone with someone who took her there and she said, oh, this is really cool. You're going to like it. And um, so we went there one night. I was still working as an engineer. I, I retired in 2003. Um, so I, I haven't worked for the man ever since then. But um, so we went and I thought it was really cool. And it was an open mic. And I thought, man, all this stuff is brilliant. And all these people are brilliant. And uh, I just wanted to hang around this kind of creative artsy culture. I found out later, as I got more um, uh, sophisticated with uh, poetry, that it wasn't as good as I thought it was. Um, But yeah, so Ellie Davis started it. And she, she was in, I guess, South Africa for some time and she started this open mic series there and then when she moved to charleston she brought it with her she did it for two years and then had a um, unexpected unplanned pregnancy and decided she couldn't be the mc anymore and by that time i was pretty heavily involved and and um and she had this idea she was gonna start uh a series well she was gonna have three different people to to take her place so that no one had to do it every week. And um, so there were three of us at first and two, two of them dropped out really quickly. And all of a sudden there I was holding the bag um, and being the MC. And I ended up doing that for, I don't know, uh, like 10 years and it was fun. And then, yeah, I mean, you were a college student then um, coming and it was, you know, to, to do something that long, you you see people grow up you know you really see i had people there from high school from the school of arts you know all the way to being married and you know having starting their families and whatever so it's really kind of neat to see people especially um kind of find their voice find their confidence in front of the uh, crowd because that's that's scary at first and um so it's always always neat to just to see people changing and maturing. Um, it, it was a great time. It really was. It was a lot of work, and it was not always fun, and it was not always well attended. And when it was great, it was really really great, and it was bad. It made me wonder, like, why am I doing this anymore? And um, a bunch of things kind of conspired to end it in 2017, and that was the end of it. But I have a lot of fond memories about it. And, uh, and it was a great thing. And people keep telling me all the time, like, oh, I really miss it. Then wouldn't that be great? You should start it again. And I always say, yeah, if someone starts that again, I will go, but I'm not going to run it again. I understand that. I think, uh, for the rest of my life, I'm never going to host an open mic ever again. Uh, not that it's not a beautiful experience, but it is uh, a lot of work and people often don't see that, especially, you know, like the one you were doing was week in, week out. That's a very intense commitment. Um, you know, 
it makes me think when you talk about seeing people grow up as well as going through kind of the ups and downs of Monday night music and poetry, that it's almost like a microcosm of the history of the Poetry Society, which also went through its own eras, uh, some you know, moments where it seemed it was all going to fall apart and somehow didn't, it, it held together and is still uh, going strong today. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, to start talking about this book. Why did you write this in the first place? What was kind of the original impetus behind wanting to capture and record in one place the history of the Poetry Society? Well, it was like many things um, that if I had known what it was going to turn into, I probably wouldn't have wanted to do it. Um, but it, it all it all started during my first presidency when I had become interested just kind of by accident in the in the poetry, in the history of the Poetry Society. And I was writing um, about the founders and I was writing about the neat stuff I was finding out in my newsletters every month every yeah every month and i started getting people coming up to me saying oh i really love your newsletters you ought to write a book about the poetry site and by the time i had you know been doing that for like three years i kind of felt like i had a really good start on a book and um susan myers who is in many ways my mentor in the on the board of the poetry society um was very supportive and she was she said you know what would be really cool is if we had a book out uh in time for the 100th anniversary in um in 2021 and and i thought why not i've already practically written it <laughs> um but i you you get into it's it's like it's like peeling an onion you just like just keep finding new layers every time and 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 it's and then I had to make a decision. Was it going to be a highlights reel? Was it going to be just like, you know, here's go maybe decade by decade for um, or whatever? And and I I finally had to decide there that I wouldn't leave anybody out. So every every person who ever appeared before the Poetry Society is in the book. Uh, every official meeting, everything and. Um, so it, it it was a huge undertaking, and none of the writing that I did in those early years, um, ten years ago, none of that made it into the book. That I wasn't as far along as I thought I was, as far as you know, this giant head start that I thought my newsletters were going to give me. Um, they were just practice, basically, for for what I ultimately did. I did notice that there are sections on in which there's kind of this very researched history. And there's also sections that are, you know, also historical events, but also written in a more narrative form. I'm wondering if the parts in which uh, are a little bit more narrative where, you know, it tells some of maybe the scandals or some of the challenges, or even when you're kind of reflecting on how the Poetry Society has changed, if that voice came from writing those newsletters for the Poetry Society. Yeah, in some ways, I think my writing itself is is um, hopefully just conversational and interesting. Um, it's a lot of when when you have to. Um, not everybody who's ever read for the Poetry Society. In fact, most people who've read for the Poetry Society, uh, it's pretty hard to make an interesting paragraph about that reading. It's, there's not a lot to it, 
But I wanted to have in each, um, if not in each calendar year, at least every every couple of calendar years, I wanted to have something that was a bigger story to talk about than just like, you know, poet A read for the Poetry Society in November. Poet, you know, it's just, it gets, it gets to be a little tedious to just be listing these things. So I wanted to find all the, like, I'm personally very interested in micro history. I, I don't really care. And I, I knew this from, from the time I was a kid when we had history class and we're talking about the King of England did this and the, you know, France went to war against England and it's too big for me. I can't wrap my head around that. I don't, and I don't enjoy it. I don't care. I don't care what a King did, but what I do care about is like what, the little guy like what was it like to be a peasant during that time or what was it like to um you know just to be a normal person and that that's the kind of stuff that i find interesting so i wanted to find those stories for the book that really kind of make it seem like like this is this is what it was like it was a hundred years ago and what what it was like to be those people and what it was like to uh, um you know to live in a society that was, that was heavily segregated and um everything that we just don't i don't know that maybe you don't really know or maybe you can't you aren't not reminded because um I, I found myself walking around charleston it looks about the same uh for in many areas as what they would have experienced a hundred years ago. But, you know, the, it's, it's like the differences are enormous. The, the, the things that women can do now that they couldn't do then, the, 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 the racism, the segregation, the, the uh, whites only, the Poetry Society started out as a whites only organization. Uh, just as, I mean, that was, it would be totally inconceivable uh to be otherwise it, it just was would not have been possible so um you know i wanted to remind the readers about all those differences to really you know get it in your head that like just how what a different world it was even 100 years ago well let's talk about maybe that world of the 1910s and the 1920s into which the Poetry Society entered. Um, one of the things in the book that was very interesting to me was the emphasis on society. Um, you know, Charleston was a society of societies. I'm sure there was a garden society and a, you know, <laughs> library society, a chess society, um, society clubs. And the Poetry Society started kind of in that spirit. Could you talk a little bit about that culture uh, in which the Poetry Society was or originally formed? So, yeah, Charleston had a long tradition. This is going back uh, for its entire time. Charleston kind of acted like and felt like Europe. Um, they had um, a long tradition of having these salons where they would meet with people who with similar interests and they would talk about uh, things that interest them I had a very um, enormous appetite for knowledge for they would talk about science art uh, literature um, politics anything they would get together it would be I think they just liked to have events that they would dress up for and they'd go to people's houses. They'd have these things and, um, and maybe somebody would have a prepared 
discussion to get things started and to give a presentation and then everybody would discuss what they heard and talk about you know their views and whatnot so that was the culture of charleston that was that was inherent these that's the way these people grew up and um separately there were two different groups of people getting together to talk about poetry poetry was a fad uh right after world war one and during um there was a it was a hard time for everybody it was a hard time for the soldiers it was a hard time for the people back at home um and there was a great relief when it was over and people just started feeling like i don't know they needed to express themselves i don't fully understand it but i do kind of investigate it in my epilogue um but anyway whatever the reason was poetry was hot poetry was the thing and um, there were a group of three men getting together to talk about it in a salon format. And then there were women and they were separately doing that. They found out about each other, kind of combined forces and got somebody, we don't know who, got the idea to start the Poetry Society and turn their little thing into a big thing and make it um, something that would be, would had a certain snob appeal, kind of it, um, with the idea that if you make something that's exclusive with a limited membership and you invite the leading figures, the most prominent, uh, richest, um, you know, the, 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 the leaders of, your, of the city um, to be in this thing, everyone would want to, nothing attracts a crowd like a crowd everyone would want to be in it and it would be successful and so um it went it went very quickly from the idea phase to the poetry society of south carolina and it was really right off the bat a big success and um and then <laughs> it it imploded um it it just basically it was collapsing under its own weight it was uh, it's over ambitious and it was um it, it was too large for the amount of volunteer hours that were available for it what did that era look like you know what was the time frame between starting the poetry society and at the time at which it started really facing its first issues um it, it really started almost immediately um i believe that and this is i think maybe new information that hasn't been there are the poetry society of south carolina is um covered mentioned in quite a few biographies uh of the era and it, it generally for everybody um the, the poetry society pretty much ended at the end of the charleston renaissance around 1940 and for me the, uh, I wanted to cover everything, like the whole hundred years. So to me, there's a whole 80 years missing from everyone's knowledge of the Poetry Society. But um, th those early years, uh, if, first of all, um, maybe we'll talk about this later, but I, since I already told you about the, the two groups, it was John Bennett. He's older. He was in his 50s. He was mentoring two much younger men. They were at least 20 to 30 years younger than him at his house. And they were talking about poetry. And they had a, a style they called um, fanging, 
like as in fangs, biting, ripping the poems to shreds. They were, they were brutal in their critiques of each other's poetry. And uh, I did, I guess they just, I don't know, they, 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 they must have liked it. Um, but, and they felt like by being brutal and just tearing apart and ripping to shreds every each other's work, they were getting to a better and better place with the final result. Meanwhile, uh, under Laura Bragg, who is the leader of, well, soon would be the leader of the uh, Charleston Museum, um, she was she was mentoring uh, three uh, young women who were interested in poetry. I don't think they were tearing each other's poems apart, but um, when they combined forces, I think what they what they imagined because they got in touch with the Poetry Society of America, which had already been around for since 1912, and they envisioned that the Poetry Society of America would be would 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 uh, be there. Would, it, they would be a franchise under the Poetry Society of America. And they advertised it that way when it was first in the paper. And I believe they they understood that they would just be um, providing a venue for programs and um, everything that the, the Poetry Society of America would send their way. So I don't think anybody really uh, realized that, first of all, that never happened. That didn't turn out that way. So they didn't think it was going to be a lot of work any more than just organizing readings uh, that were already uh, chosen for them by the Poetry Society of America. And when that didn't turn out that way, and they had to provide um, poets and, and do all this work, and nobody wanted to do it. Everybody wanted to be part of it, but nobody wanted to do it. And uh, that's when it started imploding. That was right away. Um, by 1925, the Poetry Society was in almost a free fall. It was in collapse mode. And that's just like four years later. Yeah, I think the issue of people wanting something to exist, but not actually wanting to do any work to make it happen is not a new issue, yeah. uh, <laughs> clearly. So, you know, you mentioned John Bennett and Laura Bragg, who were two of the founding members of the Poetry Society board. Could you talk about what other big personalities jumped out at you while researching the Poetry Society? Who were the members who thought made a major impact on the society's history? Yeah, they're, they're all big people. They're like just kind of amazingly um, the right people for the job, right people to start the Poetry Society just by, by chance maybe. Um, Laura Bragg was in, uh, just way ahead of her time. She was uh, she was deaf for one thing. She like um, she could read lips. She probably wasn't completely deaf, um, but she, I mean, she couldn't hear. Um, I guess maybe may, I mean she could. She was mostly got through by reading lips, and also uh, from what John Bennett, John Bennett did not like her, um, and from what he he wrote about, she just never stopped talking. So maybe that was also a way that she got around being deaf is just being the one who was always saying, always talking. 
Um, but she was a lesbian. She um, she had what they called Boston marriages back then. These these um, these arrangements, these living arrangements with other women, um, and they, they didn't, which did not have to be uh, lesbian relationships. They just a lot of times women just had to live together to to pool their resources. Um, but Laura Bragg was a lesbian. And she, um, I think nowadays, if she had been alive now, she would have been using they, them pronouns because she wrote in several letters that she didn't feel like she didn't even like to say that she was a woman. She, she felt like she was a person and she, she really resist, resisted that. Um, so, um, but she was, she was mentoring Josephine Pinckney, who was, um, she was about 24 at the time. She was incredibly wealthy, lived a, a life of privilege, and um, she was very smart. She um, was a graduate of uh, Ashley Hall's girls' school and um, had gone to college, didn't find out she she found out that she wasn't good. It's not the right place for her. So she never graduated from college. Out of all the found, founders, only Laura Bragg was a graduate of college. Um, all the men were high school dropouts. And, um, and Josephine Pinckney was a college dropout. Um, but she, and she was no good. She was worthless to the Poetry Society until the 1930s. So, um, but she was a she was a good poet and um, an interesting, like a great personality. John Bennett, a man, like he was a Renaissance man, amazing. He was just good at so many things. And he was, uh, we know a lot about John Bennett because he wrote so many letters. He was a, he, he was a prolific letter writer. And so we know everything that, he did and everything that he thought. Um, he was a really good artist and he was a very good writer. Um, and he had to decide which one he was going to do. And he just, he, he got some early success for writing some things for a children's magazine and he decided to be a writer, but he really could have been either one. Um, but he was also a perfectionist in the worst sense of the word, which um, I used to think perfectionists produced perfect stuff and just labored at things until it was perfect. But really what perfectionists do is produce nothing because nothing is, is perfect enough for them. And that was John Bennett. He, he just worked and worked and worked and he just couldn't, he just never, um, he never seemed to finish what he wanted to finish. And uh, he had all these self-doubts. He's a very relatable character to me. Uh, I, I, I really am drawn to his personality. He was also from Ohio, Chillicothe, Ohio, and he was very progressive for his time uh, in terms of uh, race relations. He, 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 he felt very strongly about educating uh, the black population he, he felt it was incredibly unfair to criticize them for for being ignorant and for being poor and then but not letting them be educated so he he worked hard uh, to uh, for that and he was also 
fascinated by Gullah, and he studied that as a language, and he was the first one to do that. Debose Hayward is probably the most famous of, he was, he was studying under John Bennett, and he's the most famous today. And he, he's a hard luck, and that's like a hard luck story from almost <laughs> A to B, A to Z. Uh, his life, uh, he just um, had one setback after another, um, a terrible uh, childhood of illness. He had polio. He was permanently disfigured by polio. Um, he kind of clawed his way up from absolute bottom to being a su successful insurance salesman. He had his own insurance company. And then, but he was interested in writing. I don't know why he was interested in writing. He had almost no formal education. He couldn't spell. He, he, um, his, his writing was, was, uh, was at a, at a below amateur level. It was just terrible. He came to John Bennett for help. And John Bennett kind of let, really liked that role. And he started giving him assignments to, of poets to read and he would help him with his spelling and he would help him with his grammar and um uh he went from that to being a best-selling author and ultimately to being famous for his collaboration with george and i were ira gershwin for porgy and bess the opera and he wrote the libretto for that and he wrote the the um lyrics to several of the songs like summertime uh, one of the most famous songs there is. So, so he was, he was big and then he died. He, he had 15 years of being a writer. His, um, uh, Porgy, the book came out in 1925, 1940, he was dead. So he, uh, he just had a, such a short time compared to the suffering that his, uh, his childhood brought him. Um, and then the, the other, the other one in, in this, uh, trio, the men's group was Hervey Allen, who was he was a, a veteran of World War One, and uh, he had he was he had shell shock, what they called shell shock back then, which is PTSD. Uh, he was not um, he was not well. He was also physically injured from World War One. He walked with a limp. He was at first he was in very bad shape. He couldn't walk at all, and um, he. Uh, he turned out to be a best-selling author. Um, in fact, he wrote Anthony Adverse, which was the second best-selling book of the entire 1930s, of the entire decade after Gone with the Wind. And you think about all the classic books that came out in the 1930s, like uh, East of Eden, John Steinbeck's books, um, Kafka, all these people that we think of now, and he outsold them all. Uh, with Anthony Adverse, um, a terrible novel. I have never been able to get through it. It's like 1,200 pages, and um, I couldn't stand it. Like, it's hard for me to even imagine why it sold so well, but it was huge, and they even made a movie of it. It was, and the movie got all these Oscars. So he was, he was, it's, it's almost the exact opposite of, of poor DuBose Hayward. DuBose Hayward was not successful in his lifetime, moderately successful, but now he's like utterly famous for Porgy and Bess. Um, and Hervey Allen in his lifetime was incredibly famous. 
now he's completely forgotten. Like most people don't know anything about him. Um, so there it was a great cast of characters, really, to start with. And um, and I tried to bring them to life. They, uh, everyone but Hervey Allen has a biography out about them. So you can read about their entire lives. And the, um, that's another thing I wanted to do with this book is just introduce people to this great reading list. Like there's so many, you, you know, you can, you can find out about people in this book that you want to go look more into more detail elsewhere. So, um, and that, I, I guess that's my own um, voyage with this whole thing is I, I, I didn't know about these people to start with. And so I found out about them, you know, slowly and just kept, kept going into further and further into it. And um, I kind of want to provide that to the reader as well. Um, that, you know, you can find out about these people and then find more information about them on your own. Yeah, there's a big bibliography in the back, not just with the books that are about the members, but also a lot of the books from the members themselves all throughout the ages, which I think is really cool. Um, you know, you talked a lot about the the early history of the Poetry Society. I'm curious about some of the later history as well. Um, in particular, one of the people who stood out was Alice Cabanis. Um, who I believe she started the Sundown Poetry Series at the Spoleto Festival. Mm -hmm. um, and curiously, I, I kind of feel like she's in the tradition of maybe Laura Bragg, where there was almost this divide of some poets uh, kind of clinging to a very, very traditional idea of poetry and a rejection of um, mostly free verse. And a lot of poets really leaning towards modernist poetry and non-traditional poetry. And she definitely was one of the people who came in and uh, tried to shake things up, both from the outside and then later from the inside. Could you tell us a little bit about right. her impact? Yeah, she, um, just in, if to, to kind of give a little bit of background, the Poetry Society uh, was very conservative, like as a whole, uh, taken as a whole, was very conservative about uh, poetry and thought that it should rhyme and thought that it was should be about beautiful things and uh, whatever. Now, um, the, the reading list, the famous poets that came, they don't seem to jive with that at all. They, they, they did expose themselves to poets that they were going to hate, <laughs> which is, I, I guess that's great. It's like that they were, they had, I, I wouldn't say an open mind, but they gave everything a chance. Maybe you could say that. Um, and, but they, I mean, they were, they thought the, um, Carl Sandberg was, was crap. Uh, they just, um, so, but there were always a few people like Laura Bragg, who was into modern poetry. She was into free verse, um, she was, which put her in the extreme minority of the Poetry Society. Um, Alice Cabanis came along. She was, she, yeah, she, she had a very, um, I think she had a very strong personality, uh, very interested in, in new things and, and, and modern things and, shaking up the poetry society because even even in her time from the 1960s to the 80s um the poetry society was probably every bit as conservative as it was in the 1920s is you know it just had never come along if you read the the winning poems from those yearbooks from those 
the, you know, as recently as the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I mean, they're rhyming, they're still rhyming poems. And um, so, so she, she wasn't satisfied with that, tried, you know, shaking things up in the poetry society. Um, now, in the book, I talk about her starting her own poetry society, a, a rival, it was called the, uh, the South Carolina Poetry Society, and instead of the Poetry Society of South Carolina. Um, it really shook things up. In, in the group, because by that time, the group had reached a, a stasis of mediocrity. Um, it wasn't going anywhere. A lot of the lectures were just about history. They were looking backwards more than they were looking forwards. Um, they were um, <laughs> didn't have money to pay anyone. So it was a time where there weren't very many interesting poets coming to the group. And um, so Alice Cabanis, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I haven't proven it but um, might have started this rival poetry society that was going to be what she wanted the poetry society to be. Um, but it, uh, it, it didn't take off. Nothing ever happened with it. But what it did was shake up the poetry society. First of all, they realized they weren't incorporated anymore. Um, so that was a, it was a good uh, re revelation to find out that they really needed to get their uh, paperwork in order because if, if whoever did start that poetry, the South Carolina Poetry Society, they could have just incorporated, they could have gone and got a business license for the Poetry Society of South Carolina. They could have like pushed the real people out of the way and say, Hey, you know, we're licensed. Um, you're the, you're the fakes. So, but um, yeah, and th and that's again, like I said, that's all the the little stuff is what I'm interested in, like the, these little uh, dramas and and uh, that's to me the like I, ultimately I knew this book was not going to be uh, have you know appeal to just mass audiences, so I I didn't have anything to lose by writing the book that I would want to read. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's, the, that's the book it is. One of the dramas that I thought was really juicy was the uh, newsletter scandal <laughs> uh, when um, a, a fairly new member at the time, uh, E.W. Seabrook Hole, uh, volunteered to write and distribute the newsletter, which he called Pegasus. Um, and he basically decided to take his own spin on the newsletter rather than, you know, reporting on the Poetry Society or talking about the news or what the members were doing. He kind of used it as his own platform in the Poetry Society as this way to legitimize the newsletter. Could you tell us a little bit about how that all turned out? <laughs> yeah, so, some, I, you know, I've never known what to call him because some people call him Eddie. Some people called him Seabrook. Uh, but anyway, Eddie or Seabrook, um, he was literally a rocket scientist. He was an amazingly uh, educated person. Who had a, he was a marine biologist. He was a rocket scientist. He was the editor of, of trade journals. And by the time he came to, you know, I don't even really know much about his, like how he, he came to live on Young's Island. Um, but he was, he was retired. He was in his 70s. Um, he was not uh, a wealthy man. He was, um, from what I uh, heard from 
um, the interviews I conducted, he he um, he was never seen in anything anything but sandals. He wore sandals all the time, and um, just kind of looked like a like a bum. But anyway, he had written or he had edited all these these trade journals for so long, and he thought, well, that's one way he could make money. So he approached the Poetry Society, saying, "Hey, I'll do the newsletter, and all you have to do is pay for the postage and." Um, and I thought, great, because nobody, again, like volunteer hours are always the scarcest thing in any organization. And nobody could keep up the effort of doing the newsletter. And this is in the days when it was still mailed out, not email. And um, so he named it Pegasus after the logo. The Pegasus is, the, is, is shown on the logo of the Poetry Society that John Bennett drew um, in 1920. And um, right away, the thing, and, the, and one thing I wish I had been able to excerpt more of was the writing in these, these newsletters. It was, a, this, a, this style was like hard to follow. It was all, um, I did excerpt his, his letters, um, you know, uh, with a bastion of mental masturbation, all these these words that he just threw it. So anyway, his newsletters were terrible, like literally terrible. And they were self-serving. He was promoting his other interests. He was promoting the um, Carolina Art Association, all these things. And and um, so anyway, the board's like, what is this thing? We thought it was going to be a newsletter for us. And then he started extorting, trying to get money out of the poetry study. He started putting, trying to make people uh, mail uh, money to him he'd have appeals in his newsletter saying uh, if you like this pay me and if you um, <laughs> why don't you contact the poetry society and tell them you want all of your dues money applied towards the newsletter and um, so they, they had to like quietly or try, try to like um, get rid of him without really pissing him off but which didn't work he was he wrote some pretty nasty letters to the <laughs> To the board and um and then he decided to use the newsletter which he had copyrighted um to keep going and to use it against the poetry society and to try to um i don't know try to discredit them for the hurt that he felt and he kept doing that that newsletter for three years and uh so yeah it's one of those interesting characters uh, the, 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 and you know, any kind of going back to Monday night poetry and music and, um, anything that attracts, attracts artistic people, you're going to get crazy people. There's kooks. And, and so the poetry society and, and anything like that will attract them. And, and, and Eddie, uh, Seabrook Hall was one of those kooks, uh, which I think we're all the richer for knowing these people. Yeah, I, I did copy down the text of his letter, which I, I found incredibly funny. It says, um, now, how do I immortalize Charleston society and its poeticule groupies, an epic verse, the tangled Gothic novel, or hybrid of them both? No, I don't wish 
PSSC or UL, but until the sanctimonious veil of support is stripped from that selfish citadel of intellectual masturbation you call a poetry society, neither can I wish you or it well. And just the drama <laughs> of that, the selfish I citadel, I was like, wow, this is just incredibly um, over the top, which um, it was a lot of fun to read. Yeah. And that's the way the newsletter read too. Like it was exactly like that. Um, and, uh, he's, he's gone now. He's been dead for a long time, but it's one of the, like, that's, that's one of the things I kept thinking, like, I want to meet these people. I want to have a (laughs) time machine and go back to, I would just love to meet these people. And, but then I started also thinking there was a, there was a period at which I was thinking, I might not like these people. Like if, if I met them, if they weren't dead and they weren't like, you know, some golden haze of memory, um, I probably wouldn't like them. Um, they were, they were racist. They were, uh, ultra conservative. They were very, very stuck on, uh, society and it's, and, and the, the, the strict hierarchy of classes and, um, it's like you, you got to be careful that you don't want to meet your um, idols because you know um, you might not like them. You might be disappointed. But so anyway, I, I thought, well, I've got I've got to portray these people, um, warts and all. They, they just get it out there. This is what they were like, and make no apologies for it, and also no excuses. Just. Like say, this is where we came from, you know, that I, I can't change the past, but, um, but we, we can all work on the future. That's something I, I was thinking by the end of the book is that if the original members or some of the people throughout history could come to a poetry society meeting in 2021 and see what we're doing, I think they would lose their minds. They would hear the poetry and they'd see the people there and kind of freak out. Um, but, you know, it's a hundred year organization. So, of course, it's going to go through some major changes, just as, you know, America and the world has changed. So, too, has the Poetry Society. I'm curious um, about some of those changes, if we could talk about them real quick. I know you've um, already alluded to, for example, the eventual integration of the Poetry Society, which really didn't happen until the 80s or, or really 90s. Could you talk about that process and um, what were kind of the challenges behind it and what eventually made it um, happen uh, when Carrie McRae first came to read for the Poetry Society and was kind of the first official African-American poet to come read? Well, it, it was a gradual process. It was an evolution more than a, a um, revolution. So the, the Poetry Society started out whites only there there it could not have been otherwise that was just the way it was not only um were uh the any organization like that would have been all white no no black person would have also wanted to like they everybody just understood these things are completely separated um that was the 30 20s and 30s things really started changing in the 40s and world war ii was fought and it was segregated troops like blacks uh, in in their own groups and whites in their other. So so segregation was still the law of the land, 
uh, even in the 1940s. In the 1950s, things really started to change. And instead of changing with it, instead of uh, becoming more progressive, the Poetry Society chose to double down with uh, segregation. And um, so by the end of the 1950s, they made rules that were specifically meant to keep out uh, African-Americans. So um, it would have been a great time to lead the uh, lead the march for equality, but they, they went the actual opposite direction. So at that point, you can no longer say they're of their time um that they were that they were just doing what everyone else was doing um so that that also started it's very interesting that it also kind of exactly coincided with a downhill slide like the the poetry society went into uh very difficult times in the 1960s and was the average age uh, just kept getting older so it was like a group of old people um dramatically different from the way it started and um, very conservative, very limited in their funds. So the, the poets were uh, just didn't get poets of national stature, like in the, in the beginning. And um, they kept on, it also became under Citadel control from the 1950s all the way to the 1970s. The poetry study was run by, citadel professors and unfortunately like while even while the citadel was being desegregated was was admitting black cadets um and these professors you know worked for the citadel they were still keeping the poetry society all white and it just i don't know it it was dying it was really literally dying out um the attendance was bad. The membership was down. Uh, the, the age just got older and older and older. And um, it really took, the, it really, I'd say, turned around with, uh, with a president, Joanna Schumann, in the 1980s. She was, she, I think, literally brought the Poetry Society back from the dead. And um, maybe... It was around that time. See, by the time Carrie Allen McRae read for the Poetry Society, everybody was comfortable. Like the the world had, you know, opened up its doors. The, 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 uh, the all the schools were were uh, integrated. Um, it, it was um, people. Every everyone had a chance to get totally used to it by the time. Uh, those those doors were opened within the poetry society. So I, the thing is, I don't think it felt like a giant breakthrough. I, by then, I, I don't think anyone thought, you know, like, oh, this is the first time an African-American ever read for the poetry society. I don't think they were even thinking like that. I think they're just like, oh, here's this good poet. And um, by then, the Citadel control was was gone the john doyle was no longer in charge and um it just like just naturally organically just became integrated i mean to a certain extent it wasn't like you know all of a sudden it, you know had any significant portion of black membership or significant number of black readers but 
it just kind of started happening. It'd be nice if it happened on purpose. I'd love to say, to be able to say like, oh, they were trying to bring black members and poets before the group, but they weren't, they weren't trying. They were just like letting it happen. Yeah, you know, it, it kind of uh, strikes me also that it might have had something to do with the fact that, you know, the organization's identity is as fluid as its membership and as fluid as the board. So once you switch out the board, you know, more than 50% or, you know, get, uh, you know, as new generations come on and, and it happens you know, when you look at the history, you know, you know, it's even every five years or so that it's, it's almost seems like a completely new generation of people over and over and over again. And so that identity constantly shifts. Um, I'm curious, because of that, you know, there's kind of this fluidity to the poetry society um, that it seems to have been so many different things. Uh, like you said, it was under Citadel control, it was under College of Charleston control. It was at so many different venues. Um, you know, the venue that I know of is the Charleston Library Society. So I really associate Poetry Society with Library Society, but that wasn't always the case. It was in the Society Hall. It was in the Dock Street Theater. It's been in the Ashley Hall. Um, and the thing that I'm curious about is your opinion about how did the Poetry Society survive a hundred years through, you know, turmoil and scandals, through the Great Depression, through two wars, through, you know, the uh, cultural, you know, kind of uprisings of the 60s and 70s, um, you know, through the 2000s, and, and now even today through kind of an era in which Charleston is being pelted almost annually with hurricanes and most recently by, you know, a global pandemic that's lasted now almost two years. Mm. What accounts for the survival of the institution? Hmm. Um, it's, it's luck. And it's also um, that every generation pretty much uh, provided a, savior for the poetry society uh it could have ended there's probably uh, a dozen times in, documented in the book where the po the poetry society could just easily have been just packed up and put away it was it, it could have been over with but the every generation pretty much has provided a savior and it's just because like you said that it's just the poetry society ultimately is just a group of people that get together um, so if you change that group uh, substantially uh, from from lackadaisical to some highly driven, motivated individuals, it just the poetry society instantly changes. It's it's just not that tough. It's not a corporation. It doesn't have factories. It doesn't have assets of any kind. It's just a group of people, and that's how it survived. Is just got lucky and had the right person at the right time. John Doyle was one of those people. He uh, just kind of single-handedly shepherded the Poetry Society right through the 60s, 50s, and 60s. Um, like I said, he was also, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, keeping the Poetry Society segregated. When he was gone, um, it was Joanna Schumann uh, turning things around. Uh, Carol Furtwängler, I think she really... Um, did a lot to bring in um, black board members, black members in general, and um, black poets to read. And then 
like in my time the the savior of our of like the last 20 years was was um susan myers uh she uh, she brought it the poetry study into the modern era and there's no mystery about it that's as simple as that it's just it's just the people and um and also you know charleston is a place of tradition um and there were members that have been members like it's still even in the 1970s 1980s there were people who had been members since the 1920s and just there's a lot of uh, real you know put a lot of great store and tradition in this town so i guess that's the answer could you tell us a little bit about the past few years of the poetry society um especially you know since you took over as president you know about two of those seasons have been really wrecked by covid as, as well as hurricanes um in what ways has the poetry society kind of dealt with those challenges yeah the um the difficulty in this era well besides covid which at first i thought was going to put us out of business but um charleston's absolutely phenomenal success as a tourist destination and as a growing like doubling its population for like 40 people move here every single day and all this this crazy growth um that has been uh given i think a, a, an existential crisis to the poetry society for one thing we realized we got lucky with the library society um but when we there have been times where we had to find an alternate venue and found out that it's incredibly difficult and incredibly expensive and we we um, um susan finch stevens and i when she was president we we were always talking about like we could literally be put out of business if the library society and i'm sure that day will come it's i don't know how we can continue having a sweetheart deal but we could literally just be um, put out of business by losing our venue and not being able to find another one that we could afford because every single place that's suitable for our meetings, uh, they could get thousands of dollars from, for wedding reservation, uh, wedding receptions. Um, there's just, um, you know, we couldn't afford it. Um, but what we found out with COVID at first, we just shut down like everything else. And then we we thought, oh, that was that was in the spring of um, 2020. We thought, you know, by 2021 or by the start of the next season, it's going to be over with. We we didn't we didn't imagine COVID lasting, uh, but when we started to see that it, COVID wasn't going anywhere, we had to find some way to exist. And the, when we discovered Zoom and joined the whole Zoom thing, um, that was a surprise. Surprisingly. Rather than the end of the poetry study, I think what it did was is made a revolution in um, membership of uh, outside of Charleston. So, so whereas the the poetry society was always Charleston centric and always you know had most of the, its membership in the in the tri county area around Charleston, um, we have now swung far away from that model. And I believe it's because we're zooming our meetings. All of a sudden, people from all over the state and other states are now members far greater than the members who live in Charleston. And I believe all that's really due to 
to COVID and to, to um, going to Zoom meetings. And so that's, you know, it's one of those things where every, every curse seems to end up looking like a blessing. And, um, and all this is still playing out. You know, we've come right to the, the present day now in our discussion, and we'll see how this works. But yeah, Charleston is, um, we've had to more and more cancel meetings because of hurricane threats, flooding, torrential rains, you know, the weather has become a major player. And you don't see that in the history of 100 years, you don't see meetings being canceled. And all of a sudden, in the last 10 years, meetings are canceled just about every year for weather. So, um, you know, together with the membership shift away from Charleston, and the, um, the weather, you know, the, the day might come, it would be terribly inconvenient for me, but the day might come when the Poetry Society of South Carolina is headquartered in some other city. One of the other changes um, that's recently come is that the readings, especially the ones now on Zoom, are uploaded to YouTube so people can go back and watch them, which is, of course, really useful for people like me who you know, usually works on Friday or Saturday and wants to go back and watch them. But it might also be useful for, you know, future uh, presidents who want to go back and see, hey, what was the Poetry Society like back in 2020, 2021? Um, I assume that you probably had access to a lot of documents and um, archival material from the Poetry Society. Could you talk a little bit about where that research and information came from. Um, you know, there's just a massive amount of uh, exhaustive research in this book about, you know, who was reading when and who was opening up for them and, and who they were. Um, where did you get that information? What was your research methods like? Hmm. Yeah, it's, um, we're lucky because in the early years, um, newspapers, since the Poetry Society was so prominent, such a big deal, uh, newspapers reported on everything that the society did. So there would be an article leading up to the a poet a reading. There'd be an article afterwards, you know, talking about the reading. There, so there, there's a, just a ton of information in the newspapers. Also, it was a time when they were writing letters. And so there are all these physical letters that are collected um, by the South Carolina Historical Society and by um, uh, the South Carolina Room and all, all these places that are that have all these archives of letters and these people that's how they like it's 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 even funny I, mean, I know they had telephones in the 1920s but they would write I mean there's just hundreds of letters there're no more than a couple sentences something that you would uh, seems like like nowadays it'd be a text. Um, but they'd write a letter and, you know, if they didn't, I found out all kinds of great stuff in these letters, especially John Bennett. Like he just, I mean, it's, it's amazing how many letters that guy wrote thousands. Um, every, I mean, he, he'd write, he'd write like eight, nine, these are typed letters and that really small, the um, elite text, um, on a, like the smallest typewriter text practically no margins, no margins top to bottom. He just filled these things with words, single spaced, eight, nine, eight, nine pages. And he'd write these, he'd write these things like every day. 
And, um, and so it's like a treasure trove of information. Um, so we had newspapers, we had letters. Um, ultimately, um, John Doyle, who was, you know, had, had this 30 year um, influence on the poetry side, he wrote a autobiography that was very helpful for me in getting information. Um, the yearbooks, we documented um, the readers um, who've read for the Poetry Society, other than the 14 years when um, the yearbook wasn't published. Uh, the yearbooks are, are a good resource. And so, like, it might not have anything, and it might only say, you know, John Crow Ransom read January. Um, so, you know, then I go, you know, I got to look up, find out about John Crow Ransom and write a little paragraph about that. So um, you can piece it together. And then the more modern stuff, um, the people are still alive. I can interview though, you know, get people's memories and also meeting minutes. We have the, the Poetry Society's papers, uh, including years and years of meeting minutes are archived at the College of Charleston. So, um, you know, those are a great source. That's where you find out, um, you know, like what they thought of uh, Eddie, Eddie Seabrook Hall and, and whatever. And now, you know, the, the embezzlement scandal that, you know, all the details about when, when the, there was a, the, the treasurer of the Poetry Society was embezzling from the group. Um, so, you, so the meeting minutes are highly valuable. So the stuff's all out there. And the, the Citadel itself has an enormous archive. That's where I started. I spent an entire week at the Citadel. Um, and, you know, every single archive that I've ever been in, uh, they must keep the, <laughs> it's like 50 degrees in there. You got to, you got to like dress up for the winter. You sit there freezing to death, sitting on your hands, reading like thousands of letters. But um, that was, to me, that was absolutely the best part of writing the book was the, the research. I loved it. It was, it was fun. And I luckily pretty much wound all that stuff up right when COVID hit. All those archives closed down. They weren't available. And that's when I started writing. So um, writing during COVID was a great, it was a great time to, to just sit at a computer at 12 hours a day. Uh, so I don't know, I kind of got lucky on that because if, if my research hadn't been done, it would have just completely delayed me for about a year. Yeah, a lot of archives um, closed down. You know, I, I worked in an archive up until the beginning of this year. And uh, last year, what we did when we had archival research was basically we would do it for them. So people would, you know, call us up and say, hey, can you do this? And we'd take a photo of it. And I worked for the government. So that was even more of an issue. I had to go through classification processes and approval processes to be emailed to somebody. Hopefully the archives at College of Charleston and the Citadel are a little less strict but it's still really intense. Um, and I, I think that that process is really cool. Uh, and yes, archives are freezing. You have to keep them at a very low temperature so that all the documents are preserved. And like there's uh, also very little humidity. Uh, so often, even in the middle of summer, you're bringing a sweater to work. <laughs> Spend yeah. a lot of time. <laughs> in archives. Yeah, I would go. I would go outside and and just like stand out in the heat and just try to like thaw yeah. myself out. <laughs> Yeah, so 
yeah that was that was that was good times like it's my ultimately like the my best memory of writing the book was the mm-hmm. research phase i just i loved it. i liked holding those documents like when you hold a handwritten letter from robert frost mm-hmm. um or wow. uh, you know all these people debose hey like and and just uh see their handwriting and and it's just it's an amazing feeling you're literally literally touching history and it's um it's it's cool as I, I just i just love it it is really cool um when did you start this research you mentioned it had been a couple of years ago so what was the year that you kind of started to formulate this book well the thing is like like i said i thought i had more than i did just from mm-hmm. the newsletters they were all worthless they they didn't help me i mean i um I don't know if you could really count any of that as research, although I was reading the biographies back then, 10 years ago and whatever. I really had to start over and I was lying about it too because people were saying, well, is the book going to be ready? And I'm like, yeah, the book's going to be ready. I'm working on it, but I wasn't working on it. I was dreading it. And um, so really I started working on it in, um, in the winter of 2019 and i when i started the research the first thing i did um then i started writing it in the shutdown like the march you know air, like marchish of 2020 and um and then wrap things up around the summer of like this summer this uh, august or july or something Yep. And now it's published and available via Amazon and bookstores. And um, I, I suppose also at some Poetry Society events uh, soon. This this is not going to come out until February. So unfortunately, mm-hmm. we'll miss the January um, event. Uh, but uh, if you all who are listening are interested, you can check out the link in the episode description uh, to find this book and buy it yourself. Uh, speaking of things that people can check out, Um, You know, you can also, if you are a South Carolina writer or someone not even in South Carolina, but really interested in being part of the Poetry Society, join the Poetry Society and become a member. I'll include this in the intro as well so that people will know how to become a member of the Poetry Society. Um, I have two more questions for you before um, I let you go. The first is, I'm curious about what you hope that future Charleston and South Carolina writers might learn from this. Um, One of the things I think was really educational, interesting, was that everything that is being done in Charleston has been done before. Uh, You know, Hmm. I I think that it's very easy to start something, whether it's a literary magazine, a society, an open mic and think, well, you know, we finally done this. But if you look back, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of other examples of other people doing it. Um, and, And generally there's always someone who's done some stuff in the past. One of the things that came to mind was, um, you know, right now I'm involved with the uh, Charleston Free Verse Festival. And one of the things the Free Verse Festival does is put poetry up around the city. And uh, one of the things I thought was really cool was in the, you know, I think 70s and 80s, the Poetry Society doing all of these events to basically get poetry out in public, including a kite flying event, which I was very curious about. I was like, what does that even mean? Was there poems on kites? Uh, Was there? Do you know anything? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, they they hired this uh, calligrapher to write all the, they, the, they had a contest and all the winning poems got written down on these kites and they flew the kites. Um, so yeah, they were trying these things and, um, and they tried a lot of things like that, mm. that, you know, one of the, you, you've asked like, what do I hope to, for, you know, people who read this book? One of the things is that I was hoping that everyone on the board of the poetry society and future board members um, would read the book just to, to expand their mind about mm. what the poetry studies tried in the past and just how how different it was from what we do now. Now it's like uh, you know all poetry all the time, um, but in the past, you know, they would have uh, musicians come. They would sit and listen to records. They uh, they had just if they didn't know what to do, they'd have like especially during the Citadel era, they had Citadel professors came and gave class lectures that they I think they were just recycled from their classrooms and they would give lectures about poetry in fact much of the 1920s and 30s they never had poetry readings they were they were lectures about poetry they were educational um so that educational component I think that you know just to to expose new board members to the idea that uh that you can we can mix it up um, so, so I, yeah, that was one of the re- things that I thought would be very beneficial about writing the book is, is just for the board's education. Yeah, for also, sure. um, <laughs> one other thing, like, it, cause yes, the book is available on Amazon. Um, and you might think, oh, this probably isn't interesting to me. But what ultimately I think the book is, is the history, the, the intellectual history of Charleston in the last 100 years. Um, so anybody who um, is from Charleston, anybody who grew up in Charleston, will they will find their relatives. They will find people that they remember from childhood. Um, they'll find, um, I've had readers co- contact me saying, I didn't even know my dad was in the Poetry Society until I read that, you know, he he presented to the Poetry Society in the 1950s. So it's because um, the Poetry Society was the center, the intellectual center of the of the city. Um, it, it contained the creatives and the intellects of the city. And so everything that was going on with the Poetry Society is the history of Charleston. And um, and I tried to make it, um, like we said before, is this, I tried to make it as interesting as possible, funny as possible, and try to put as much um, sex and, and scandal and everything else I could could put in there. Because um, I, I just like, I like, like that. So I like all those little things. These are just people just like us um, living their lives and, and doing, you know, their thing and um yeah maybe it does remind you that there's nothing new under the sun that that um that that you know you you can really see what's been tried and um and learn from it definitely um the the final chapter you know is about the contemporary era of the poetry society it's titled embracing the future and this takes place right before the epilogue 
if, you know, there were a chapter, you know, added on in 2032 that looked at everywhere from 2021 to 2030, what would you hope kind of the chapter of that title might be? And I guess what Mm -hmm. I'm asking is, what are your kind of hopes for the future of the Poetry Society in the next decade, or maybe even the next century? Though that's difficult to even (laughs) understand. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I I could even imagine the next hundred years, but um, I guess what I see in, in, in the poetry side, it could be anything that we want. Like I said, it's just a, it's just a group of people that get together. So, um, but um, what I, the trends that I see are that The poetry society is always going to be a a niche. It's always going to be a small thing that appeals to a small group of people. And uh, I I don't see that getting any better unless we do what the the original poetry society did and make it a cool thing to be in. But what you get from doing that is you get a whole lot of people who aren't interested in poetry at all. And it might be like, you know, the hobnobbing with the, the, the rich and famous, but ultimately those people uh, are not as interesting as the people who are really into the uh, literature and poetry. And um, so it's going to be that small group. It's going to be a, it's going to be a, uh, appealing to a small group of people. I think that will continue. I would like to see uh, more diversity in our audiences because we, while we have put in, you know, Daniel Detiberis has put in this huge amount, like she is on a mission for the very first time. I, um, I, I, there's never been a mission like hers to provide a diverse group of um, races, sexual preferences, all kinds of all that stuff is now designed right into the programming uh, not it's not an accident and, and um, so the thing is that with that diversity of poets uh, we still don't see the diversity of audience um, that that's a puzzle um, it's going to be very difficult to solve it like we we have been scratching our heads about that for the last twenty years. Like, how do we get African Americans into our audience? We we get uh, a regular uh, supply of black poets reading, and they read to white audiences, and um, and we're like, you know, pulling out our hair, trying to think how do how do we change this? Um, that's a that's a puzzle. Um, like I, uh, also in the next 10 years, we might be wrestling with if we can even survive in Charleston. This place is way too popular, way too expensive. Um, there was, you know, a time when everybody lived downtown. Now almost nobody lives downtown. So to just having our meetings downtown, people don't even want to bother with the traffic and the parking. Um, you know, there's some logistical things that might really have to change just to keep the poetry society viable. Um, and, you know, and, and we can keep going, we can, um, we can, we found from COVID that we don't even have to have a venue. It's not as good 
it's definitely not as good to have zoom meetings but um we could survive like that i think the poetry society of north carolina does that now i think that's what they are they're just a, a zoom organization so one way or another we can survive if there's a will to do it if the volunteers come forward and you know we get people that want to accomplish things on the board Well, I think I'm sticking around in South Carolina, so um, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know how it goes for the next, uh, you know, we'll see. You'll, I mean, you know, I know you'll also be around, you know, over the next 40, 50 years of uh, Poetry Society, which will be really cool. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Well, I've really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, I think this um, has been, a, is fun for me to talk about the book and um and yeah, one one thing I want to say too, mm -hmm. because people don't know about the is the poetry study. I get letters all the time uh, saying, um, like, here's my credentials. Here, here's all the poems I've written or whatever. Can I be a member of the poetry society? There is no. You do not have to <laughs> uh, be a poet. You, you don't have to have ever written a poem. You don't even have to particularly like poetry. You can be a member. All you need is thirty bucks. That's <laughs> So, um, and it's, I, uh, you can also enjoy all of our programs for absolutely for free without being a member. And, um, so it's not, it's not a group that you have to work to get into or anything like that. It's just, uh, it's, I think a fun group and it's a society. So it's a group of people that have similar interests and they come together to enjoy that with with people that feel like are you know kindred spirits or whatever so it's um i would i would love to see a, a larger membership a, lar a more diverse membership and and i'd like to see the library society packed for our monthly meetings Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope that you'll check out the book, The History of the Poetry Society of South Carolina. It is really fascinating, especially if you're a South Carolina poet. I think it's so important to look back and reminisce on what has come before, because I think it will help prepare us for what will come next. And I also want to encourage you to check out the Poetry Society website, which is linked in the episode description. There you can find about all of the amazing events that are available to you at the Poetry Society, um, including a super secret members only event that's hosted by yours truly monthly. We just had our first poetry salon. That's what it's called. The poetry salon. I know it's so fancy. Um, last month. And we'll have our next one on February 21st. The next regular meeting of the Poetry Society is going to be online on Zoom. A reading with the poet Dane Levin. And opening for Dane Levin is going to be Eugene Platt. The next day, Dane Levin will be teaching a workshop called Poetry and the Un conscience, which I think sounds super interesting. So if you want to learn about that event and more, you can go to the Poetry Society uh, of South Carolina website, which again is linked in the episode description. 
If you want to learn more about the podcast, Contribute Reverse, the best place to do that is to follow us on Instagram at Contribute Your Verse. If you want to find out more about your host, that's me, Evelyn Barry. You can go to my website at evelynberrywriter.com. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, where I uh, not only share poems, but also educational content. So if you're the type of person who is like, hey, I would totally love to watch a one minute video on what the heck enjambment is, well, I've got you covered. Uh, Now, until next time, remember that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse.